0: Truth is all I have to Continuing on with this business about materialism versus whatever else, I don't really know what they call it. Mysticism, spiritualism, I don't know what they call it. Psychology, psychologism. How are visible objects representations of ideas? How do the eternal ideas enter the three-dimensional world in passing time? Plato suggests that they enter through the most minute, through the dimensionless. It's evident that generation takes place whenever a principle, or an arc, like an archetype, originating principle, attains to the second dimension, and coming as far as the third, arrives at such a state as to become an object of sensation. That's in Plato's Laws 8.9.4a. For those of you who have Plato's Laws, the books at home, you want to look that up. Oh, nobody? Nobody here? Oh, I'm shocked. Okay, I don't have them either, so. <laughs> it, it just, the, the look on Jess's face is like, yeah, right. <laughs> right next to the Playboy. <coughs> <Half of it>. <laughs> <laughs> this seems to mean that he thought that the higher world enters the known world through its finest divisions. Interesting. I'd like to see how he develops this idea, but it must be clearly understood that Plato's suggestion concerning the source of generation is not a refined materialism aided by a theory of dimensions. Originating cause is for him quite distinct from any matter that we can reach externally through scientific research. Idea enters into manifestation through what for our sense perception is dimensionless. Well clearly we can't see the connecting link between the five senses, and the realm of ideas. And Plato makes a link by saying, well, it's the minutest parts of it, which is fine. Let's conceive an illustration. Idea enters as seed. The seed is the elementary material, constituent, or third term. Between the first term, the idea, and the third term, the seed, there grows up flower, animal, or child, as second term. Only in one sense is the seed cause. So only in the sense of in the physical realm is the seed caused. But the idea behind the seed is the cause of the seed. The seed is fertile because of the first term, the idea, which is nil, nothing, dimensionless, invisible in the phenomenal world. And of course, anything that is invisible to us that we cannot detect with our senses or five senses doesn't exist. For us, it does not exist. In the world we live in, it does not exist. And you have to be some kind of a nut job to think that there is a world that you can't see, taste, smell, hear, touch. You know, that there is a world that's all around you. And we lock people up. We throw nets over people like that. Butterfly nets over people like that. Give them little white jackets that fasten in the back. Anyway... The seed is fertile because of the first term, the idea, which is nil, nothing, dimensionless, invisible in the phenomenal world. If the material organization of the seed be faulty, so if it's a little moldy or there's something wrong, it's cracked or whatever, the idea to which it is conjoined will be unable to manifest itself in space and passing time rightly. The spermatic power is really in the idea rather than in the seed and flows as a current through the seed when the right conditions for nurture exist. Now see, this is where materialists will not move along. <coughs> with. This. They're, they're not going to go along with this at all. It's like, come on, so you're telling me that the idea fertilizes the seed. Yes, that's what he's saying. That there is a power, a current that flows through the seed when the right conditions for nurture exist. Yeah, thinking naturally, we see the full cause of a flower or an animal or child in the seed alone, in the minute speck of organized matter. And that is how materialists see it. That is how we see it. And you have to bend your mind to try and see it the way he's seeing it. And my guess is, if you're understanding this at all, you're scratching your head and going, "Eh, I don't know about that. And in the case of sterile hybrids, we think, rather of a state of the seed than of the confounding of two distinct ideas, each of which can only manifest itself in an appropriate seed. So now we have GMO and hybrid seeds and all. He doesn't even know about this stuff. Genetically altered seeds. So you take frog eyes and put them in a seed, you know, in a corn seed, so that you're, I don't know why they do this stuff, but they do this weird stuff. And... It's really screwing things up. They have no idea what messing with all that DNA does to you when you ingest that stuff. No idea at all. Well, there are some ideas, but the people who are making the seeds and the people who are doing the genetically modified food are not interested in knowing about it. They're interested in ignoring that and squelching that, as it always is. Anybody who's got a product where they're making billions of dollars and someone comes up and says, well, this is killing people. No, it's not. Remember the tobacco companies? <coughs> there's, there's, no, there's no link to any. <laughs> and, you know, and all these executives are dying of cancer, lung cancer, you know, but there's no link at all. It's all. And it was proven, but they paid doctors to come and refute it. They paid the Food and Drug Administration. They paid off everybody because they had so much money. And let's face it, how much money would it take for you to tell a lie? Well, it would take nothing because you lie all day. But but, but you know what I mean. I mean, it's, it's like, I'm sure you know what I mean. you get paid Oh, yeah, you get paid. Oh, yes, you get paid for lying. You bet you get paid for lying. Look at how it makes you look. You lie so that you look good. You lie so that you don't hurt people's feelings. All this lying is all about your pride and vanity. So you're getting paid. You're getting paid in the pride and vanity bank. You're stocking it up. You just can't ever have enough. You can't ever have enough pride and vanity because if you have enough pride and vanity, other people might notice it. And then you got to lie to hide it because you don't want them to know you got all that pride and vanity, because then you start to look proud and arrogant and haughty and self-righteous. So, it's a problem. Being human is a problem. Not that we're human, but being human machines is a problem. If we could actually be human, real human beings, that might solve our problems. So what he's saying is you bring those two kinds of seed together, usually the distinct ideas would have to manifest itself in an appropriate seed, in each seed. But now that they're mixing these ideas, they're now mixing seeds in consequence of the quality of our consciousness, which gives us an outward direction. We cannot see ourselves distinctly. It's interesting how he moves right from that into this. But remember now, you're thinking of seeds, probably, that you planted in the ground. And he's also talking about children like that. That's also a seed. And we need to expand our awareness. We take the effects of outer life upon us as ourselves. Okay, (laughs) let me give you a horrible example. I was watching this kid play a video game. And the character that he was playing was named Jason, somebody. And this kid's playing the game, and he's talking to the character on the TV. Come on, Jason, get up. Come on, Jason, run. Come on, Jason, do this. Come on, Jason, do that. Now, I've seen other people play, and Jason gets killed, and they go, Oh, no, I got killed. What was interesting to me was that this kid was so non-identified with his character. It was like... He would talk to the character like it was some other person. And he seemed completely detached and having a great time. But then I watch other people who are identified, and they're not having a great time. This kid is always going, oh, golly, look at that. Oh, good gracious, goodness gracious. You never hear anything negative from him. But I watch other kids, and they're foul-mouthed, ill-tempered, screaming and yelling and carrying on. But they are completely identified. Now, that little tidbit brought to you by video games. And they say there's no good in them. (laughs) But you know what? There's good in all of life. And it's a matter of your job. Your job, Luke, is to find it. Okay, we can scarcely discern our states and moods apart from what appear to be their outside causes. And that's exactly a perfect example of that. This kid's playing a video game. (laughs) His character gets killed. And he throws the controller at the television. I've seen this happen. He throws, they they have all these broken controllers, you know, kids buy controllers all the time because they're always breaking controllers, throwing them because they're so upset, which I find really humorous. I'm too old for that. I know how much controllers cost, so I don't throw them. (laughs) mommy's not going to buy a new one. No, mom's not going to buy me a new one. (laughs) So that's what he means by we can scarcely discern our states and moods apart from what appear to be their outside causes. Governed by our senses, reality appears to be outside us. Centrally, we do not realize the invisibility of ourselves and others. For this is not a matter of perceptual consciousness. We're talking about a different kind of consciousness, not perceptual consciousness based on the sense mind only perceiving what comes through the senses. This is something else. Our outwardness prevents our reaching of inner harmony. There's nothing in ourselves so much more real that it is capable of isolating us from the continual effects of the world that is entering via senses. But if there was something in us that was more real, that could help isolate us from what was coming in through the senses, we would start to have some choice. As we are, we don't have any choice. We're controlled by the sense given seen, and so we are outside ourselves. When you are controlled by the senses, you are outside of yourself. Can you see that? Can you see that you're not inside because there's nothing in there? If there was something in there, you'd be in there, but there's nothing in there. It's so weak in there, and it's so dark in there that it scares you, so you come running back out here. How many people do you know who really don't like being alone? There are people who, I know, this is hard to believe, there are people who really don't like being alone. They can't be alone for 10 minutes. Whereas like, I'm just the opposite. I get around people and it's like, I want to be alone. (laughs) Leave me alone. Anyway, we're controlled by the sense given seen. And so we are outside ourselves. But we imagine that we are controlled by our reason and set firmly in ourselves. And we do. We we imagine that our reason dictates everything that we do. and A little self-observation, a little constructive, directed, non-identified self-observation will show you that you rarely ever... Okay, let's just come up with a rude example. When was the last time you were in some kind of an argument where you said something and you went, somebody said something to you to provoke you, and you got provoked and answered them? Okay, I can see by the way your mouths are twisting that it does happen. You get provoked. Okay, let's put it a different way because I saw one head nodding no, one head shaking no. That doesn't happen to me. That was I won't say who that was because we don't want to embarrass people. Well, I don't mind embarrassing people, but people don't like to be embarrassed. Provoked to say something doesn't mean provoked negatively. Somebody says, wow, you got your haircut. It looks great. Oh, thank you. You were provoked to say something. So it all works the same way. We're automatic. How do we justify it? Well, it's just being polite. No. It's being mechanical. It's not being polite. It's being mechanical. And if you don't know that about yourself, try a little bit of non-identified, directed self-observation. In other words, look for that as if you were looking at someone else in the room until you find it. Look for that in yourself as if you were looking at someone else in the room who you didn't particularly like until you find it in yourself. Not in the other person. Of course it would only take you three nanoseconds to find it in the other person, because we're constantly projecting it out on them. But that's not what we're talking about. Speaking of the conditions of higher consciousness, Ospensky remarks that it is necessary that the center of gravity of everything shall lie for man in his inner world, in self consciousness, and not in the outer world at all. He wrote that in Tertium Organum, page three hundred thirty one in case you're going to pull it off the shelf when you get home and look it up, which I know you don't have it, so that's probably not going to happen. He is speaking here of self-consciousness as the full consciousness of I. He's not talking about, when we talk about self-conscious, oh, he's so self-conscious, oh, she's so self-conscious. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the full consciousness of I, real I, of a state of consciousness in which the center of gravity of our being, that is, I, is in ourselves. Well, where else would it be? In your car, in your house, in your boyfriend, girlfriend, in your money. I can tell you a million things where your center of gravity is and it drags your eye out there. And that was the whole example of the kid throwing the controller at the television screen when his character got killed in a video game. Okay, that's sixty bucks for a new controller and if you didn't break the TV, well you got off easy. But How often do they do that? Pretty often, actually. With our present consciousness, we are, as it were, fused with the world and continually distracted by its changes. Fused, glued, stuck, whatever you want to call it. It's like the world is like a thrashing machine. And what happens is if you get too close to it, you pay too much attention to it, it grabs some loose article of clothing and pulls you in and then thrashes you and then spits you out. That's what the world does. And you know that because that's what's been happening to you almost your entire life. Where did that come from? We always go, where did that come from? What made him or her like that? And the form of our thought, which is based upon what the senses show us, is natural. That is, it follows the world of sense and passing time and is grounded in the evidence of things seen. That's it. We are completely fused, glued, stuck to the evidence of the senses. That is where we live, move, and have our being, and we lie about it constantly. Well, maybe not constantly, but whenever we become aware of how identified we are, that's when we start to lie and justify. Because if you're identified, the important thing is to save face. Not to get not identified. The important thing is to save face. It's like falling down. Remember why somebody fall down and they they look around to see if anybody saw them? Or you've done it yourself. First thing you do is you look around to see if anybody saw, saw you, because that would add insult to injury, wouldn't it? And it's because you're so identified with this thing that you're walking around in, or that you're falling down in, for that matter. So all of these examples tickle me pink, not that I don't have them, it's just that I have had them, and I've seen them, and then I said, okay, well, that's just too embarrassing to look around if you fall down, so I'm never going to do that again. (laughs) But it's a motivator to be more conscious. And anything that motivates you to be more conscious in the direction of the work, I consider to be a good thing. Whatever works for you, use it. He says, To get the center of gravity of our being into ourselves, to become possessed of an internal sense of I, in place of the continual reactions of the moment to which we say I, another reality of all things in general is necessary. It's not enough just to have a different reality about this. you got to have another reality about everything in general. Your whole center of gravity needs to change. Your whole consciousness needs to change. Everything about you needs to change. wait, but I thought there were some things I could keep. I don't think so. And if there are some things you get to keep, you don't get to keep them. You, the thing that you call I, doesn't get to keep them, because it's been keeping them. Something else has to keep them. Our natural concepts are not sufficient to change the quality of consciousness. People don't just change their quality of consciousness by eating hamburgers and french fries or grilled cheese sandwiches and french fries or fish and chips or steak and lobster or surf and turf or whatever. They don't do it by going to baseball games, football games, highlight games, soccer games, hockey games, whatever else. They don't do it by skydiving. They don't do it by getting a great job and earning a lot of money. They don't do it by going homeless and pushing a shopping cart. That's not how you do it. None of those things will expand your consciousness and give you a different quality of consciousness. It's not, not so much as expanding your consciousness. What good is it if you're expanding your consciousness and it's just more junk? You know, if it's just more junk, It's worth. you want quality consciousness. You don't want just more consciousness. Consciousness of what? I want to be more conscious of how negative I am. I want to be more conscious of how stupid people are. I want to be more conscious of how people are liars and idiots and betrayers. Okay, that's not a good quality of consciousness. Not for this work. Not for this work. Man must not only overcome the sensual view of life by theoretical thinking, but he must look within, away from the senses, and become an object of study himself. You've got to study yourself. But you can see how we're turned outward. It's so easy to study others. I mean, there's Diana over there, and the sun's shining on her face, and I can study her, you know. There's Pat over there, looking, 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 so I can study her. You know, so there's all this studying that can go on, and all the time you're studying out there, you're not studying yourself inside. He must get beyond merely sensible knowledge, and even rational knowledge. You've got to get beyond sensual knowledge, that's obvious. But now you've got to get even beyond rational knowledge. Look at all of the scientists who have all this rational knowledge, and look at where it gets them. Eckhart observes that there are three kinds of knowledge. Of course, would you know? It can't be simple, can it? The first is sensible. The second is rational and a great deal higher. The third corresponds to a higher power of the soul, which knows no yesterday or today or tomorrow. So here's a quality of the soul that is outside of time. Yeah. Mm, Everybody's touched it. Everybody in this room has touched it. Well, maybe not everybody. But those of you who did a 10-day Vipassana, you touched it, where time just, you got outside of time. You got outside of it. It's just like time didn't matter, and they were telling you it was over, and you were like, huh? Remember that? Huh? I just sat down. Eckhart is referring to a phrase used by Paul. Pray that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, breadth, length, and depth. He's pointing to a state of consciousness where time, as we know it, vanishes, and there's no yesterday or tomorrow. Not only does a change in the sense of I belong to a higher quality of consciousness, but the natural concept of time derived from our sensory contact with the world disappears and a new knowledge or sense of time takes its place. You know how it is. You'll be really into something, a book or a television program or whatever, and suddenly someone brings the time to your attention and it's been hours. And you're completely, what? Where does the time go? (laughs) It just goes on the treadmill of life. It doesn't go anywhere. It just goes round and round like a hamster on a wheel. It just goes round and round because it's circular. It's cyclical. It just continues round and round and round and round. That's why you've got to get off that wheel. That, of course, is what he's talking about, getting off that wheel. Not only does a change in the sense of I belong to a higher quality of consciousness, but the natural concept of time derived from our sensory contact with the world disappears and a new knowledge or sense of time takes its place. So something else happens. What higher mathematics touches theoretically in relation to dimensions is perceived by direct cognition. You get in an altered state of consciousness, period. From this point of view, higher mathematics lies in between the understanding belonging to our ordinary consciousness and the understanding belonging to a higher level of consciousness. So there is this connecting link. But if you don't know about higher mathematics, you don't have that connecting link, which is fine. Trust me, I don't know about higher mathematics, so I don't have that connecting link. I had to go and find it directly because I couldn't. I'm too stupid to get it any other way. There is something good about being stupid. You think about the book Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And he was such a simple guy, simple-minded, just a simple person. But when you read what he wrote, it's like, wow, this guy woke up. This dummy woke up to the real world. And he did something that you couldn't do. And that's all there is to it. And if you don't know what that is, then read the book. That's my pitch. And no, I'm not selling the book, but you can find it and read it. It's a good book. This is how I understand Plato's view that numbers differ from ideas and occupy the interval between ideas and sensible objects. The ideas belong to a higher degree of reality than do sensible objects, and in between come numbers. But we must understand that to arrive theoretically at the conclusion that the world is four-dimensional is quite different from the realization of it through an actual change in the time sense. So all of you have studied a lot and you've meditated and studied meditation, you've done all this stuff. And it's amazing how quickly we learn to parrot it, and we have no experience of it whatsoever. Or well, we have one tiny glimpse, and then we make our lives all about that, and we spend our lives talking about that. Well, that, blah, 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 and as if we still had it. You do know that we do that. Okay, good. Well, I guess I'm talking to those people out there in podcast land. Who haven't discovered that they do that yet, and they're probably turning this off. Yeah, well, shut up. I don't like you anyway. (laughs) Okay. I'll shut up. Just press stop, delete, whatever. Control, alt, delete. (laughs) We've considered three of the factors limiting to the development of consciousness. First, the question of our sensualism and the necessity for overcoming the sensory and literal point of view with which the attitude of materialism is connected. Second, the need for change in the sense of I. Third, The need for a new understanding of time. So you've got these three things. First, you've got to somehow withdraw yourself from the world of the five senses. You've got to pull back from that. Then, you've got to change your sense of I. That will begin to happen when you start to pull away from the world of senses. Unless you don't pull away to something constructive and get some direction about what to look for inside. You could just become autistic. I don't know what would happen. You just become mad going inside and never coming back out again. And there's not much difference between a madman and a mystic, a madman and a saint. They're almost always called madmen. They told Jesus he was crazy. They told them all they were crazy. They told Paul he was crazy and that his learning had driven him crazy. Remember that in Acts? Anyway, so we've got these three things to work on. First, the sensualism. We've got to get out of that literal point of view. Then, we have to have a change of the sense of I. And then third, we need a new understanding of time. The fourth factor relates to the quality of our love. And that isn't something that we can really talk that much about. Let's touch on that briefly before continuing the subject of levels of consciousness. And that's why we can't talk about it too much, because we are not prepared for it. We do not have... It's like going out to gather rainwater without something to bring it back in, and that's what we are. We're something that won't bring this back. We have a very little container for real conscious love, and so we can't get much in there. Our love is little else than self-love. The more we study what self-love is, the more does it become apparent that it puts, paradoxically, the center of gravity of our being outside ourselves. If you have self-love, you fall down, you look around to see who saw you. That's self-love. Your center of gravity is outside yourself in what other people think of you, what other people say about you, what other people want from you. Or, putting the matter in the reverse way, because the center of gravity is outside ourselves, we only know, broadly speaking, self-love. Self-love always requires audience, either imagined or actual. Perhaps the simplest way to begin to understand the nature of self-love is to study it from the side of falsity of action. Whatever we do from self-love, we do in a false way, from a conceit, from the standpoint of producing some impression, obviously, on someone else. We are not really doing what we are doing. We're not doing it from ourselves, but from a curious relationship of ourselves to others. You fall down, you look around to see if anybody saw you fall down because you have this curious relationship with this outside you, and other people, or to the idea of others and ourselves. You have to admit that it's very difficult to think about yourself without thinking of others. That'll just give you an idea how connected it is. The great writers on self-love often take the subject back to the central point of attack in Christian psychology, to the Pharisee in us, who does all things to be seen of men. The criticism, I suggest, is directed against the lack of any real psychological starting point within ourselves. We probably take this Pharisee too concretely, imagining we know the kind of people to whom the term can very well be referred. We do. We we do take it that way. It's not probably we do. I will take it as referring to a difficulty that exists in everyone. Oh that really puts a damper on things, doesn't it? That means it exists in not just the people I point out, but all these other people too. No, that means it exists in you too. Oh shut up. <laughs> He says, I will take it as referring to a difficulty that exists in everyone and one that is a feature of our form of consciousness. We have no real I. We have no real self consciousness. Our love of self is not love of anything real because what you're loving is not real. So we cannot act from anything real in ourselves, but only from a continual mirror like process within us, which is not self initiated but automatic. So that in considering what puts the center of gravity outside ourselves, we have not only the factor due to the senses turning us outwards, making us see all as lying outside us, but also the emotional factor of self-love. So you add that, and it's like it's a one-two punch. We're already connected, glued, fused to the outer world through our senses, and then emotionally we're all wrapped up in self-love and everything that touches us out there touches us emotionally, our self-love, and we end up throwing the controller at the television because your self-love can't be wrong. Your self-love can't get killed. Your self-love can't get hurt. Your self-love can't fail. And your self-love is connected to whatever it is that you're identified with. And it's really you're identified with yourself. And as we are identified with ourselves, we identify ourselves with the world. We are like covered in crazy glue. And everything we touch, we stick to, and it sticks to us. And that's our condition. And it's not a very pleasant condition when you think about it, if you're going to think about it at all. If you're not going to think about it, well, what are you doing here? What are you listening to this for? You have to think about this stuff. You must think about this stuff. If you don't think about this stuff, I promise you it goes in one ear and out the other. Oh, it may knock around in there like a pea in a 50-gallon drum for a little bit, but eventually it's gone. Or like that little ball they drop in a roulette wheel. And then that's over. You get one number and you didn't win. Well, isn't that how it goes? You get one number and you didn't win. That's pretty much how life goes for us. We don't win. And this work is about Taking your failures and turning them into winnings. Taking your failures and turning them into successes. Not by anything out there changing, but by changing in here. By withdrawing your sense of I from the sensual world, from your self-love, to a place more real. And right now, the only place in us that's more real are these ideas. So if one of these ideas, or foundation of these ideas, you can use as a touchstone. That is your closest link to real eye the ideas are the closest link to real eye if you want to find real eye pick up the ideas like breadcrumbs start collecting them guard them because the birds are going to come and eat them if they get a chance and the dogs will come and eat them if they get a chance and the the rain will make them soggy and they'll disappear so you've got to be very careful you've got to guard them you cannot just go blurting this stuff out to just anyone who's going to rip it to shreds and then you're lost So you need to guard it until you are strong enough and until the ideas are firm enough, take firm enough root in you so that they can protect you from yourself. Trust me when I say you need to be protected from yourself. The self that I'm talking about is the one that the self-love is all about. This monster thing that is automatic, that's out of control. We all know better and act worse because we're out of control on automatic. And that's it until next time.